Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. This question was particularly exciting for me to receive because it's a question about how to observe a particular ritual that I was not familiar with. I actually had never heard of this ritual. So I will ask the question, and then I'm hoping that you will both tell us a little bit about what this ritual is and where it came from, and then also you can answer the particular how to observe the ritual question that this uh, questioner asks. Okay, great. Let's hear it. The questioner writes, The general practice when in Avelut, in mourning, is to switch your seat in shul. However, the general practice is also to avoid public demonstrations of mourning on Shabbat. So, putting these together, if one regularly attends shul on Shabbat, should you change your Shabbat seat? All right, that's a good one. I hear what you're saying also. There's two components there. Just what's this thing about switching your seat in shul? And then we can get to, oh, how does it interact with Shabbat? I would actually say there's two rituals here um, now that I look closer. One is, what what's the deal with switching your seat while in mourning? And the second is, what's the deal with not having public mourning demonstrations on Shabbat in particular? Uh, I know many people who recite Kaddish on Shabbat, so I'm curious to hear maybe a little bit about each of those rituals, and then we could see, are they, uh, do they butt heads? Do they compete? Um, you know, in, especially in a world where, where one has a seat in shul. Great. Okay, so let's take on the seat question first. And I will start just there. I'm sure many of us have childhood memories or maybe even current associations with a certain person who always sat over there, or you look to that side of the sanctuary and you know you'll see that person. And then, you know, God forbid if they're sick or they pass away, there's a real loss in the sense of people become associated with positions, mm -hmm. right? in the sacred space of shul. This first piece almost assumes a prior practice of having a place in shul. Yeah, it's a beautiful image, and I'll say, I know it's one I think we've discussed actually about our yeshiva also in Manhattan, that we can look around the room and, and see not just the people who are studying in that room at any given moment, but all of the students who sat in all of the particular seats, you know, over years and years and years previous, it sort of brings all of their energy into the room through those those uh, makom kavua, those uh, designated seating yeah. arrangements. Yeah, no, it's it's really powerful. And so that gets tapped into with this notion of, we can talk it through, but I think a certain kind of discombobulation that happens to someone when they're in mourning, and what are kind of the corollary effects of that on the way they situate themselves in the world. So it all starts with this passage from Masechet Smachot. Masechet Smachot, if you opened up the Mishnah, you would not find it there. Um, it's what's sometimes called kind of an external tra tractate uh, or a masechet ktana, a little tractate. It's like bonus features, the song, extra song on the album that you can't see on the, on the back 
recording. I love it. Exactly that. It's like the extended edition, right? Something like that. And uh, you have all these tractates that are from the people who brought you the Mishnah, more or less, though sometimes there's later material in there. Um that are on different topics, and one of them is on the topic of smachot, which you would think is celebrations, but is a euphemism for the bad and tough things, specifically mm. death and mourning. So in Masechet Smachot, and I'm going to read just the first phrase here, because the language is actually going to be important. Avel b'shabat rishona eino nichnas levet hakneset. The mourner on the first Shabbat after the burial, does not enter the synagogue. Now, Shabbat there could mean Shabbat, the sacred day, once every seven days. But it also can, and probably here does mean, week. And what this means is for the first week, you don't go to shul if you are in mourning. I.e., you sit shiva in your home. That would seem to be what it means, but stay tuned. This view says, first week, don't go to shul. The second week, you enter and you don't sit in your normal place. Third week, you go in, sit in your normal place, but you don't speak. Hmm. We'll come back to that, not totally clear what that means. And then the fourth week, you're back to normal, you're like everyone else. So the text describes a four-week process. Stay home, show up, and sit somewhere else. You think it sits somewhere else, or does it mean stand at the back of the room? Like, don't sit down. Good question. You're right. It says, I know Yoshev Bim Komo. We just know he's not sitting there. You're right. I think it's not clear. As a person who is sometimes in that category of lurk at the back of the room, I, I could sort of see that as a phase of your... You're considering coming in to sit down. That's right. You're right that in a way this is much more uh, of a transitional reading, what you're offering. You're totally out. You're half in, half out. Then you finally sit down where you were meant to be, used to be in week three. You're not speaking. It's not totally clear what that means. If you're in the synagogue, it, it seems to be you're, you're praying. You're probably saying words. But it seems maybe you're kind of on guard, maybe not to talk to your neighbors. <laughs> Not that, you know, you should be talking in I great length. I was going to say, it's, a, it's an underhanded acknowledgement of like, <laughs> what you obviously came to show for was to schmooze. But in week three, refrain from schmoozing. Yeah, you sit there, you're, you're somehow more tight-lipped in one way or another. And by four weeks, right, really the fourth week, so it really would be like a three-week period, uh, you're back in. Right? That's enough. Now, I won't take you through all the details of this, but while that is kind of the main opinion, in this text and in a number of other parallels in the Yerushalmi and the Bavli, the other two Talmudim, there are at least three other configurations of this. There's one view that says, no, 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 you stay home for two weeks. Uh -huh. And you don't normalize until week five. And another view that says... You stay home for two weeks, and you immediately go to your regular seat. You just don't speak, skipping the sort of coming to shul and not being in your seat phase entirely. And a final view that says you do the whole thing in three weeks, which means week one, you go to shul. Mm -hmm. You go to synagogue, implying this seems to be a view that shiva doesn't mean you stay home. 
You think or you think it's uh, this is by week one, we mean week one post Shiva? I think it means the more surprising view to us because there was at least one medieval view of Rav Yitzchak Ibn Gayat who ruled that, of course, you don't go like on a trip, you know, to go to an amusement park during Shiva, but he assumed you went to Minyan and then came home. Mm -hmm. He did not think there was an institution of the Shiva Minyan in the person's house. So that's probably what this means, even though it did not become normative practice. Yeah, I mean, I could certainly see that making sense, especially in a community where people's homes were not large enough or set up in a way that Minyan in your home made any sense or 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 could be possible. Um, yeah, that I think is on a practical level, might totally be right. And the other piece that probably this series of arguments is about is what's the right way to have a phased re-entry? I think you see this uh, on a spectrum potentially of, well, one view might say, no, 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 you, you've got to be at Minyan. You've got to be in the community. We actually don't want you when in mourning to be like in exile at all. And others that are really putting the brakes on and saying, no, 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 until week five, we do not want you feeling totally normal, or we want to honor the fact that you may not be able to feel totally normal, and we'll create certain rules and regulations to make that organic. Well, week five seems the least surprising or the most logical to me because our other morning practices are centered around, you know, a week and then a month as a marker of of behavioral change. So it would make sense to me that after that month, you have to shift into something else. Um, and, and maybe I'm surprised. We'll see where you're going with it, that there isn't a, a year version also. Yeah, good. We're, we are going to get to that. I think what you just raised is really interesting, which is the question of, does this interact with the period of Shloshim, that notion of the first 30 days of mourning, which is the core mourning for all relatives, like, right, even if it gets extended for parents for a year, the core main thing, which every close relative has, uh, is 30 days. And you are gravitating quite naturally to the normalization in week five, because then, oh, then I'm done with Shloshim and now I'm back. But actually, that is an outlier position here. All the other positions and that main first one clearly finish before that Shloshim period is up. And in fact, the tour, the medieval codifier, when he takes a side in that debate and says, we follow this four-week system, he says something else. He says, the weeks here begin on Sunday. So meaning it's not actually a full week. Or more huh. precisely, the weeks here end on Shabbat. So if the burial happened on Thursday, week one ends on Saturday. Week two begins four days later. And if you follow that, which is how it gets codified in the Shulchan Aruch, there's no way it ever hits Shloshim. You're talking about something that is maximally four weeks, but usually will be like three and a half. So it doesn't really map on to Shloshim, no matter how you count it. Not really, in the four-week version, at least. I actually think that experientially going through Shiva um, can feel, there There can be something really at odds about measuring your own weeks versus measuring weeks that end on Shabbos. It's like we're used to weeks that end on Shabbat. And, and experientially, it can feel like, well, Shiva took two weeks because it was 
from one Shabbat into the next into the next week. Um, you know that there is something actually more organic about this, even though it's more standardized practice. Um, but there's something just really powerful, I think, about the acknowledgement that um, it, it may be distinct from Shloshim, but it mirrors the concept of we re-emerge and we re-engage after a death in stages. Yeah, it seems very much uh, grounded in that sensitivity. And I'll, I'll share one other text with you. I'm curious how this um, how this lands with you, which gives another window on the changing places. This is also uh, from Masechet Smachot. Really, it's like the next paragraph here. It talks about when a great scholar dies, and it's imagining someone who basically has a yeshiva, like he has a Beit Midrash. And it says, in his Beit Midrash, everyone's got to scramble their seats. Wow. Which is this incredible image of, hey, it's not normal what just happened here. Mm-hmm. And, and some, there's a deep kind of insight of, you sit in your normal chair, you can kind of forget that anything about the world is different because you're used to sitting there. So here, no one's formally mourning as a relative, but we're trying to simulate the mentality of mourning. And the way you do that is no one in the yeshiva is allowed to sit where they normally sit. That is an incredibly moving and powerful image for me. It it actually, it, it awakens like a, you know, what what modern rituals could we take on? It awakens in me an idea to say, um, you know, I could see a family like switching your seats at the dinner table when when a significant member of the family has been lost to say like this family is never going to be the same. We can't go back to that seating pattern anymore. Um, it's just it's an incredibly significant, I think, if if simple way to to mark that change. Yeah. And then we're playing with the duration question. How long do we do that? And when do we allow ourselves, maybe even force ourselves to re-enter? So this is where the duration question comes in. That's kind of it on the core sources here. And that's where the Shulchan Aruch and the mainline Sfaradi tradition ends up. The Ramar of Moshe Isserlis reporting the late medieval and early modern Ashkenazi tradition, and hard to know exactly where it begins, says that's the rule, the four-week and maybe it's three-and-a-half-week re-entry process. But he says, but the custom is when people lose a parent, they sit in a different place in shul for the full time of mourning of 12 months Mm -hmm. and bringing us back to Shloshim for all other relatives they don't switch back until the end of Shloshim. Now, what's so interesting is the Ramah, when he's reporting this, he says, I'm telling you, this is A, this is the custom. B, it has no basis whatsoever in any source that I can find. Huh. C, don't depart from it. That's how we do it. Now. Love it. So it's interesting to think, like, why did that organically develop? In some ways, you organically produced the, you know, uh, being drawn to the end of Shloshim as the right time, even for interpreting the text. And the Ramah is saying, no, it's not what the text means, but that's what people wanted to do. I think the Ramah here is also giving us a window into the ways in which whether or not it started this way, this practice was experienced by people 
as an aspect of mourning, not just a kind of coping mechanism for re-entering shul, but a marker of part of the way I mourn my parent is I sit in a different place for a year, not just I'm trying to re-enter. Because if you think about it, from the perspective of re-entering shul, it shouldn't matter how long your mourning period is, because it's about I was out, and now what does it take for me to come back in? But it seems to jump columns into this is part of how I'm showing honor to the deceased. It also has the external effect of telling everyone else in shul that you are, that something is off, that something is wrong, that you are not fully back and or just really literally that you're an Avel, that you're in mourning still, um, such that you could walk into a room and say, hey, did I miss something? Why is she sitting over there today? Yeah, yeah. So that's the story on that practice, kind of considered alone, maybe the base for our questioner's question. I want to tell you about a podcast I love, and I think you will too. It's called A Bintel Brief. Back for its second season, The Forward turned one of the most historic advice columns into a fun, modern, conversational show. Each week, two very different Jewish mothers, Gina Green, a Black writer and movement builder from the South, and Lynn Harris, a comedian, will come together with The Forward's archivist, Hannah Pollock, to dish on the dilemmas of Jewish American life, identity, culture, and politics, both historic and conversational, I know A Bintel Brief will quickly become your new favorite show. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. The other aspect of the question was about Shabbat. And there, it's pretty much a general principle. We could do a whole other episode on it. Uh, there is no public mourning on Shabbat, unlike a festival, a Yom Tov, which cancels or suspends mourning. Like, it just doesn't exist, right? right? Uh, you, you lose someone four days before Rosh Hashanah, like Shiva just ends, right, when you get to Rosh Hashanah. Um, but with Shabbat, Shabbat obviously doesn't end Shiva, Every Shiva has a Shabbat right, in by it. by definition. Yeah, and that's probably why it doesn't end Shiva, because it wouldn't make any sense. But there is some notion, uh, this is the way I think of it, um, the Jewish world, the Jewish people is trying to zone something on Shabbat. We're trying to construct a certain kind of mood. And even if it's not 100% joy, there's a good piece of it that's joy. And it's supposed to be restful and non-agitated um, in a way that the behaviors and public displays of mourning simply conflict with. And so the mourner then lives in a space of, well, you're still in mourning. And even the things that you can observe in a kind of private way. So, for instance, the most glaring of those is the ban on mourners in Shiva being intimate and having sex. That applies on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. That's not, right, suspended. Because that's not a public. Because it's private, exactly. But they can't go out in public not wearing shoes, because people are going to look at them. What's going on? Oh, you're in mourning. Oh, it changes the whole mood. It's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that what it conflicts with is the like rest on Shabbat part of Shabbat, but the imagine that the world is perfect 
part of Shabbat um, is that when we have to confront the death of the people who mean the most to us in the world or that that the person sitting next to us is confronting that, um, that it's that that's what could pop the bubble of Shabbat as this imaginary utopian. The world is um, perfect. And, and when I say imaginary, I mean like ritually real and powerful, not imaginary as in silly or make-believe, um, that we actually, we need that all the components to line up in order for that ritual magic to work. Um, and this this public mourning practice may be at odds with that. Yeah, I think that's a really nice and good resonance as well. And then you watch how it plays out in, in other halachot, in other contexts, different practices on for how long people won't take an aliyah on Shabbat uh, during their mourning period, when will they start to participate like on a Shabbat day. There's a tradition for a lot of people not to lead davening uh, for a long period of time while they are uh, in Avelut. So a lot of people who they won't lead Shabbat shachrit, let's say, uh, for the entire year of their morning. Just to clarify, they will lead when it's not Shabbat. That's they actually right. have a a requirement, so to speak, or yeah, a, pri- an a instinct. privilege. To, yeah. yeah. Um, just to make that clear, that's not that's a, right. across the board. That's only you almost suspend that for Shabbat. That's right, and and that depends. There's different practices on it, but one of the rules associated with that is if they come up to you on Shabbat and offer you an aliyah something like that, then you actually can't refuse because that you, the, would, the mourner? mourner, because that would be a public display uh-huh. of mourning on Shabbat. So you can let the gabayim know, or if the people who give out aliyot are sensitive, they may come and say, I just wanted to check in with you. What's your practice? Mm-hmm. What do you do? Not do. But technically, you're not supposed to say, I can't do that today because I'm in mourning, because that's supposed to actually Go recede into the background. Not show it up. is so interesting that we actually would change our own personal mourning practices to accommodate, I guess is the word, or to put in front of it the needs of the broader community. I think it also it really could have a significant impact on the the psyche of the mourner themselves. And sometimes you, it's like grief and grieving. You get no break from grief and grieving. And so the idea that you could say. But on Shabbat, you can have a break from this, at least the public posture of it. It's like you can't have a break from the private. It's in you and it's and you actually don't get a break. But at least publicly, you know, you can just go to the Oneg and it's okay on Shabbat um, to give yourself a little bit of a break from the intensity of that stance. Um, That could be really powerful, but that's actually not what's driving it. What's driving it is to say, you know, we as a community have to set up a system that functions and that system can't sort of be, you know, taking a, a swerve and a turn every time someone has someone has a loss, you know, and today we might say like, or a bar mitzvah or a wedding. is <laughs> like, how much are we changing public practice for the life cycle events of the individuals? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's very perceptive and connecting to what you, you know, clarified earlier and reminded us of, particularly in communities where mourners are 
leading potentially every day of the week. Actually, the life of the synagogue is very dominated by mourners Mm -hmm. in many communities. And so viewed from that perspective, Shabbat is sort of the one day (laughs) where we're not organizing everything that way, or that's not how we're thinking about it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fascinating dimensions here. So, so th- what should we do? Should we, should we, where should we sit? On yeah. Travis? So, so I think we can feel now how these two might butt up against each other because particularly if you have a clear sense of, yeah, but Mrs. Schwartz sits over there like mm-hmm. every week and now she's saying Kaddish and she's sitting over there and I'm thinking about, you know, her state and I know she's only sitting there as a public display of mourning. So how could you be allowed to do that on Shabbat? So this unsurprisingly uh, is not a new question. Mm-hmm. And you had two views uh, that took this on. So the Nimuke Yosef, who is a Spanish medieval commentator, um, he reports that there were people who were going back to their normal places in Shul only on Shabbat. So they'd be doing this re-entry thing, sitting in a different place, but on Shabbat, they'd revert to normal. And then let's say, imagine they're there for, you know, Mariv at the end of Shabbat on Saturday night, they'd switch back, right? Yeah. And he says, they think that, well, they shouldn't be doing public mourning, right, in Shabbat. They're wrong. They should not be sitting in their usual places on Shabbat. They should maintain the unusual seating, right, during Shabbat. That's one view. We have to unpack what that is, but just in terms of a ruling. He says, we're not worried about the public marking of avelut, of mourning, at least through this practice on Shabbat. The Rashbam, who is in France a little bit earlier in the Ashkenazi world, says, no, 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 you can go back to your regular seat on Shabbat. Not clear that he thinks you have to, but it's okay. Um, the Shulchan Aruch weighs in and says, uh, you should not change your place on Shabbat. That is to say, be in your regular seat on Shabbat. And then the Ramah says, yeah, yeah, but the custom, the practice follows the Nimuke Yosef. You stay in your new uncomfortable place, even on Shabbat, and as we learned from before, for the entire period of mourning. Now, this aggravates later commentators on the Ramah because they say, okay, I, I get that's the custom, but what about Enavelut Pefarhesia, Bishabbat? What about we're making these very visual displays? So there's two really interesting answers offered. One is offered by the Levush, and he says, hard to know how local this is, he says, um, you can justify this practice because people often change seats in Shul. Ah. And therefore, it's not so noticeable. Now, would then the Lavouche, if he walked into a shul, you know, sometimes you walk into some of those mean shuls where it's like, you, you know, you come in and like, you can't sit there, you can't sit there, you yeah. can't sit there. Um, you know, would he think differently about that? I don't know. We we get a little bit of side uh, information here that the Lavouche's shul was a little chill. You know, people were okay with it. Yeah, and or just that there there may be another explanation. It's not the only explanation for having switched your seat is that you are in Avilu. You might say, oh, no, why is Avi sitting over there? And you would say, oh, well, it's because 
she, you know, I don't know. There could be maybe many other reasons why why someone would switch seats. Right. So it's not so it's more light on that side. Obvious. And she wanted that. Right. It's yeah. not like walking out in the street without shoes where it's sort of like no one would be doing that. Right. Unless there was some uh, morning practice. Um, the Shah says something different. Um, and he says, you know, this whole thing of Ein Avelut Befarhesia, that we don't do public mourning on Shabbat, it's not totally true. People don't shave and get haircuts for a full month. And they walk in to Shul on Shabbat, and you see from their appearance that they are in mourning. Right. And essentially, being in a different seat, it's an appearance thing. We're not really regulating it at that level. Things that are like, I would be totally forbidden from doing X or I'm going to sit low to the floor, that you're not going to do. But this is just the person. This uh, Look, they have a beard. They're sitting on that side of the shul, whatever it is. We can sort of tolerate that. It's a little bit like how active or passive is the sitting. You know, it's interesting. You're using the phrase, they don't have to move, to mean they can sit in their non-avelut seat. Right. But actually, if That's they've right. been sitting... Monday, you know, if if you assume that they they have again, as you described, like they do have Della, then they get up for Mariv, then they actually have to move. The don't have to move is like this year I sit on the left side. That's Next right. year I'll go back to sitting on the right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And yeah, what's the psychology behind that? And how are we thinking about that? And where does this meet the mourner? And where does it meet the community? That's part of what these different voices are getting at. Although I actually think the second opinion could actually be responded to by the first, in that sometimes people just grow a beard. <laughs> you know, that that also is a sign that could mean that you're an Avel or that you're living through a global pandemic and you didn't have to go to work <laughs> for a few months. You know, there are lots of reasons. The- theoretically why. speaking. Just, just theoretically having nothing to do with my household at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right, I guess let's try to bring it home. The questioner was really asking some version of this question, but sounds like specifically in a context of, well, what if I only go to shul on Shabbat? Or maybe you could extend right. that to, I, I meet, you know, or the, the shul I go to is a different or one I on Shabbat. I only go to this shul on Shabbat. Yeah, something right. like that. And I think the questioner there is sort of responding in some ways has some background knowledge here of implying, well, I get if I was in the same shul, maybe it would be that factor. But I think we've seen here Right. There's a couple ways to think about it. You would definitely have good basis for sticking with a changed seat, right? Even if you're only showing up there on Shabbat, uh, following the Ramah, the Levush, the Shach, these different sources that we saw, where they just say it's kind of part of the package of mourning. Like, that's what you do. We do it for Shloshim. We do it for the full year for parents. And we're not thinking too much about either where people are sitting or we're not worrying about their appearance on Shabbat as public mourning. But even if you follow the Shulchan Aruch, which remember in the kind of Svaradi part of this, it was just like a three and a half week, right? We re-entry that didn't track in that way. Um, and the Shulchan Aruch, remember, weighed in and said, no, you should go back to your regular seat on Shabbat, right? It might be less of an issue for the Shulchan Aruch if there's no weekday comparison, right? So that is to say, someone who is following the Shulchan Aruch, the Svaradi ruling here, and seven days a week they're showing up, 
The Shulchan Aruch is basically saying, you can't allow those people who saw you sitting in the unusual seat Sunday through Friday to see you sitting in the unusual seat on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. That's like reinforcing your status as a mourner. I could imagine that view saying, well, but if you're only in this room on Shabbatot, people aren't going to think about, oh, where were you last week? Like they're thinking about where were you on Friday and where were you on Sunday? Hmm. And that might change it, but I think it probably would really depend, bringing us back to the beginning, on how associated are you with that seat, right? In other words, the underlying value thing you'd be trying to reckon here is, is my movement part of some general noise in this space or is my movement like profound in terms of, oh my God, the whole thing feels different. Just to give you an extreme, you know, if the rabbi who would normally sit on the bima in a year of mourning would sit in the back row the entire time, it's hard for me to imagine that not being received as a public display of mourning on Shabbat, even by the most nonchalant or, you know, kind of flexible views on this. Yeah. I- I'm also finding myself thinking about the the moving a seat in mourning. Um, this is not what it is actually saying, I don't think, but um, just the fact of so many people who who, because of whatever their life patterns are, they do not usually make it to Minion, but they do when they are in mourning. Is there there is sort of a grand moving of your seat from like I daven at home by myself or or maybe I, I don't always get around to it to no, I'm in shul now and I have a seat as an Avel um, that it makes me think, you know, and I know many people who they sort of pick up the practice of attending Minyan in Avelut and then continue attending Minyan is that maybe that may actually be the moment that feels like a switch of seat is to mark the end of Avelut. Um, if you didn't have a, a makom kavua, a designated seat in shul beforehand, that you might now have one as a mourner and you could now switch that one to a different spot to mark the the end of that. So I have one last question, um, which to me is obviously the most important question, which is, does anybody else weigh in on when we get to schmooze again? Because we don't have to go a year without schmoozing, right? That's a great question. Right. Well, The Ramah seems to only focus on the seat going back to normal uh, and not on the question of speaking, right? And you're right that in all of the original sequences that we had, there was this space, there was this stage where you're back in your seat, but you don't speak. And we know that the seat changing is extending, but the ve'eno medaber piece is not necessarily being regulated in that way. Uh, It's a good question that I actually don't, I haven't seen direct uh, addressing of. My sense is it gets sort of just bound up in the ways in which people are regulating their social lives. How much are they not going to parties? Not necessarily in the shul demeanor. Though I will bring us back to what you asked about Kaddish, which I think is really important and maybe relevant here. when you have a practice, which develops much later than the Talmud, of mourners showing up to shul and saying Kaddish at the end, right? Not just leading, but mm-hmm. someone being assigned this special role. In a way, I think religiously, anthropologically, 
that takes the space of the ve'enomedaber, like the not speaking. Um, that is to say, their kind of verbal presence in shul is very different mm -hmm. during the year of mourning. Um, in a way that also, I think, functionally makes it harder to talk, right? I always feel for mourners, like they have to be on in those times where everyone else is talking. It's kind right. of the end. <laughs> no one's paying attention. And there's a sense in which they're actually not in that group right now. They're called to attention. They're saying Kaddish. And I wonder if that's the way we play out that aspect of this ancient text. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I feel also like I've seen that. I've been witness to that, um, you know, or or talking to someone and then realizing, oh, wait, no, they have to say Kaddish now. Actually, they, they get pulled in in a different way. I just feel like I should acknowledge the position of privilege that I'm in actually to not have known this custom now that I realize it, um, that it's it's maybe a sign that I have never been in Ave Lut, that I don't know this custom and just want to sort of acknowledge to those who are listening who, who feel like, I wish I could have not known that custom, but I didn't have that opportunity. I pray that we continue to be able to return to shul in person in our in our moments of Ave Lut so that we can live out this practice as intended. Sky, there's an empty seat, an empty Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chobinski for recording and editing this episode. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Would you like to sponsor an episode of Responsa Radio? Email radio at hadar.org. <laughs>